Welcome to the institution, public education about education for families, educators, and even students of all ages. Today's section is originally posted on Friday, July 12th, 2019. It's all about video games today, and I would recommend it to parents, guardians, and current or prospective educators. As we reach the midpoint of summer vacation, I'm thinking back to my summers as a kid. Like me, many children are probably spending quite a bit of their summer playing video games, although it probably doesn't look the same as it did back then. I remember playing random games found online through my home dial-up internet. Now, kids can be on an iPad or a Nintendo Switch or PlayStation smartphone and so much more. Gaming used to be looked at as nerdy or geeky, but now it's mostly mainstream and becoming more and more widespread. It feels like something related to gaming shows up in every news cycle, but that might just be me since algorithms know that I play games. Gaming has been a large influence on schools, and it's only growing. As I teach throughout the year, I'm often thinking about how much screen time that I'm giving to my students, how much I'm putting them on laptops, whether it's for specific step-by-step -step assignment, typing practice, reading, math practice, or open research on a pre-approved topic for a project. I worry that I'm putting my students on laptops too much and that they're getting too much of that screen time. In schools these days, there's a high potential to have kids spend a large amount of time on laptops for adaptive learning or also known as 21st century learning by some schools and districts. Programs and websites such as Khan Academy, BrainPop, Extra Math, Newzella, and iReady, along with all the other sites that I mentioned on the Summer Slide episode, and so many more websites and programs are used in schools and classrooms, both voluntarily and under district or school mandate. We often end up putting our students on laptops on a daily basis with some, te with some teachers having them on laptops up to an hour or more a day. Laptop usage, of course, goes up for older students as they're more adept at it. And we end up, end up putting them on laptops to do their writing or independent research or reading or some adaptive learning. Although the technology is meant to be used toward learning and we do monitor students, I wonder if the pervasiveness of technology in schools, as well as the extent to which we use it, sort of feeds into students becoming more and more attached and reliant. Although useful and powerful, I do worry about developing over-reliance and over-attachment to technology and students. And as educational games develop and become more engaging and useful for teachers, I think about how the line between games for entertainment and games for education gets muddied. I grew up playing games for fun, and even now I still play an occasional game, and I consider myself up to date on gaming culture. It used to be the case that kids that played video games were the minority and that they'd sit at a lunch table on their own and they'd sort of be their own clique where they talk about games and connect to other people with the same interest. They'd be that geeky or nerdy or weirdo group in the movies. Now in my elementary school classrooms, I feel like I'm more hard pressed to find a student that doesn't have experience playing a video game of some sort, whether it be one of the big titles like Minecraft or Fortnite or Roblox or whatever else, or a small little game on their phone. As games are saturating the lives of children everywhere, so has gaming culture invaded schools. It's been a challenge for me as well as all the other teachers that I've spoken to. I feel that gaming in itself isn't bad, but students, young children that can't really partition gaming from the real world from school are facing challenges and they're bringing challenges into classrooms. This whole last year I had to continually deal with students that want to talk about the latest big play that they made in Minecraft or Fortnite last night or some new structure that they built, or how fun it was to play Roblox with their cousin over the weekend. And to just say, no, you can't talk about games at school, doesn't really work because it's been such a big deal of what they do outside of school 
You can't just cut that off or tell them to leave a part of themselves outside the classroom. So having students not be off task and chattering with friends during an inappropriate time is fine. And students did learn to keep it out of the classroom, but just having to work at that throughout the year was another thing on my plate. More so than just talking or playing games, gaming culture and behaviors learned from games were a bigger issue. Students taunting or trying to tease each other by doing a Fortnite dance or getting upset at each other and calling each other cancer or toxic were much more significant. Children that went online with what I imagined to be little to no adult supervision got into problems at home, and these problems spilled into the schools. Friends that had an argument online, maybe just a little spat over a game like calling each other trash, like, oh, you're trash at building and editing in Fortnite, continued getting into it at school. And as we all know, there is a difference between interacting with somebody in person and interacting with one another behind a computer screen or TV miles away from each other. It didn't matter if they were best friends or just casual classmates. In a video game, we all just act differently than how we would act otherwise, because it is a video game. It is a fantasy world. And what I saw was some children having a hard time disconnecting from fantasy world and coming back to the real world much in the same way that I had a hard time when I, when I became addicted to video games. But these days, games are so much more addicting in my opinion, and so much more accessible and widespread in the mainstream, with famous gamers that live that sort of dream life of playing video games as their career and making millions and millions of dollars. Students share with me that they want to be a YouTuber when they grow up. They want to become a pro gamer. They want to be a Twitch streamer playing and going pro at Fortnite or entertaining people while building cool structures in Minecraft, or hitting the big stage in Overwatch. While I don't see gaming as inherently bad, I think a lot of current gaming culture can be inappropriate for children. They're still so immature when it comes to self-discipline, their expectations of reality, and their mental and social development. I don't mean to make a comparison that seems overly alarmist, but I think of the pushback against e-cigarettes and the Juul Company, which is a company that makes flavored e-cigarettes and they sold flavors that seemed as if they're marketed to a younger audience. If you get somebody hooked early, then you get them hooked on it for life. I wouldn't say that a lot of games are intentionally marketing toward an elementary or middle school aged audience, but there sure is a large following consisting of them. I've had students tell me how they play GTA at home, or Grand Theft Auto for those of you that are unfamiliar with it, which is a game rated mature for sex, violence, language, or profanity, and probably several other things. And then there are students that play Call of Duty. These are just two games that are definitely not meant by the creators, producers, and developers for young children to play. But if a family chooses to get them for their child or children, then that's their call. But to think that we can just say to our children, hey, GTA is just a game. So don't think that's how life should work. Don't think that you can bring it into school with you. Well, just saying that to a child is definitely not going to work. So if you make the call to actually give access to your children to play any game, then there needs to be a reasonable expectation of the consequences, negative or positive, that will go along with that game. Often though, parents aren't familiar with what goes on in gaming culture and video games, and we just give access to the children without doing the research. Maybe because other kids are playing it, and your child is coming home saying, hey, so-and-so is playing it, because their parents left them. So we shortcut it and think, well, if some of the other kids are playing it, then it must be okay. So I might as well let my children hang out with his or her friends so that they can go ahead and play with their friends and not be the odd one left out. For these children, it ended up causing issues down the line for all of us. 
And I just want to say that these aren't bad parents. Parenting is the hardest job in the world, and mistakes are to be expected. But this is something that I believe we should all get more educated on, because gaming is a part of our everyday lives, whether we like it or not. On the other hand, there are parents that are very apprehensive about games, and they don't let their children play any games at all. Again, I want to reiterate that games in and of themselves are not just bad. There are a lot of myths about the negative effects of gaming, some of which my own parents still believe. For example, there's a myth that playing video games will make your eyesight worse because you're staring at a screen for hours on end. Eye strain and eye fatigue is a real health condition, but that doesn't typically result in permanent damage. In a study that compared action video game players to the average population, it was found that action video game players that played 5 or more hours a week had better vision on average with the ability to distinguish color as well as fine details better. In a TED talk by Daphne Bavlier, other myths such as gaming causing attention problems were debunked. In the studies that she quotes, it turns out that gamers that play action games have better brain development in the areas associated with attention. She also talks about a study where one group of subjects were made to play 10 hours of, it, of video games over two weeks, and they showed improvement at mentally rotating 3D objects. So in these cases, rather than gaming being detrimental, it was actually beneficial for the gamers. But we haven't talked about yet the two bigger issues that are more commonly connected with gaming. First is violence. Shooting games are sometimes blamed when gun violence hits the news. Shooting games these days are definitely much more realistic with the graphics, along with the names of guns. I was alarmed when I heard students excitedly talking about finding a spaz, which is a type of shotgun, until I realized they were talking about Fortnite. Both President Obama and President Trump mentioned shooting games when giving some speech or another after major incidences of gun violence. But it turns out that other countries in the world that spend equally, if not more, on video gaming as the United States have rates of gun violence that are significantly lower, and video games alone can't possibly be the cause of this. The American Psychiatric Association also found that gaming doesn't correlate to gun violence, although it can correlate to aggression, which in this case is the attitude of being hostile or forceful. Studies seem to repeatedly be finding that gaming matches up to positive outcomes. For example, kids who play sports games tend to be more involved in sports in real life. Now we don't know what happened first exactly, whether they played the game and then got into sports, or if they were already into sports and then picked up the game. It's basically the chicken or the egg question. In these cases, there is issues with forcing young children to play games to study them. And also, there hasn't been a lot of time for studies to be done, so it's mostly surveys. But another survey found that players of strategy and role-playing games had improved problem-solving skills compared to an average population. Interestingly, one study was done that found that a moderate level of gaming, or less than an hour a day, correlated to higher life satisfaction, social behavior, and less depression, anxiety, withdrawal, and so on. While people that had a high level of gaming or very low levels of gaming were worse off than the moderate gamers. So overall, it might be that some gaming is actually good for you, while too much gaming isn't good for you, as with many other things in life. I think that if creators and innovators of video games really set a vision and push forward, gaming can become a windfall for us and our children. I learned about a game called Dig Rush, where you basically have these little moles and you direct them to go mining. The idea behind the game is to have kids suffering from lazy eye play it because the color palette of the game is set so that you can wear these special glasses that will filter out a color from each eye 
and both eyes will need to work together so that you can see the game and play it properly. The normal treatment for lazy eyes just, is just to wear an eye patch over the strong or normal eye so that the weak eye or the lazy eye can catch up. It's for kids that would have a hard time keeping the eye patch on, I guess. Unfortunately, the game was never released, and there's no news of it since March of 2017 when they said that they were applying for FDA approval to become a legitimate treatment for lazy eye. I mean, it was unsuccessful, or maybe they're still going through some sort of approval process, but it was really innovative. Virtual reality games or virtual reality software is also being used for a lot of things other than purely entertainment. For example, the explaining of surgery to patients or training military. The military was such an early adopter of VR before we had the current models like the Oculus Rift. And they're also looking into using VR for psychological therapy. And just recently, two weeks ago, there was an event that concluded called Summer Games Done Quick, where they basically just played video games for a week on Twitch. And they're raising money towards cancer research. People that were watching ended up donating a total of $3 million towards cancer research. There's so much that video gaming can affect, but there hasn't been enough research done on all aspects of it yet. In the current state of gaming, the average gamer is quoted in multiple sources and studies as being in their 30s. It gets more specific from study to study, but every single one that I've read has them in their 30s. Worldwide, gaming is a $135 billion industry in 2018, which is up 10% from 2017. Ninja and Tifu, two professional Fortnite players, each earn millions of dollars a year with their current income and regularly have tens of thousands of viewers when they stream live on Twitch. Fortnite says it has 250 million registered players, according to an interview in March 20, 2019. And videos of Fortnite on YouTube by top creators regularly get millions of views. Fortnite is exceptional, but many popular games spawn followings around them that people can live off of, including Minecraft, which also regularly gets millions of views on YouTube, League of Legends, which really brought esports into the mainstream, Call of Duty, Super Smash Brothers, Roblox, and many, many more. Games are here to stay, and as they warp society and culture around them, we're also adapting to deal with them. In the middle of 2019, the World Health Organization released its 11th edition of the International Classification of Diseases, also known as the ICD. Health professionals, organizations, and insurance companies draw from this manual filled with all the diseases, disorders, and so on to give diagnoses. In the latest edition, gaming disorder was presented as a new mental health condition. It's described as having impaired control over gaming, which is not being able to control how long you play, how frequently you play, having the control to stop playing, or being able to resist playing, and so on. Another symptom of gaming disorder is when more and more priority is given to gaming over other life interests and daily activities. And the last symptom is continuing to play games despite the negative consequences. The gaming disorder di diagnosis is supposed to be considered if there's evidence of it over a year or more, or the symptoms are really severe. However, even though gaming disorder is now officially a mental condition according to the World Health Organization, the United States probably won't be adopting it for quite a while because the adoption process of a new ICD is pretty lengthy. The 10th edition, the one before this, was adopted in 2015, even though it was, it was released in 1992. I would say that I'm in favor of gaming disorder being defined as a mental health condition, but I know it's controversial. As with the potential benefits of gaming, the correlations between the sport game players 
and more sports in real life, there's the chicken and the egg question of what came first. In this case, the question is whether somebody got really addicted to games, and then they started having problems when prioritizing gaming over other things, or if the person had other issues in life and then turned to games as an escape. Mike Fahey, a writer for a gaming website called Kotaku, wrote an article in 2009 about how he got addicted to games, but instead of it being a cause of everything else, it was actually a symptom of depression and a breakup with his girlfriend. Getting addicted to video games did make everything worse, but it wasn't the root cause of it all, according to Fahey. The American Psychiatric Association also isn't jumping to labeling gaming as a disorder and is still considering how gaming can be a symptom of other issues. I also see gaming as a sort of stress relief or a sort of wind down activity, but I've also been addicted and felt all the damage it can do. Going back to the first points that I was making, I'd want to keep gaming disorder as a possible diagnosis for health professionals because of all that the gaming industry is doing to keep itself alive. Gaming is made to be as addictive as possible to build more playtime and more immersion because that all means more money. All the silly skins and dances in Fortnite, the loot boxes in a, in a variety of games with maybe the biggest one being Counter-Strike where you're essentially gambling, the microtransactions, these are all mechanisms that games use to make money. And young children often don't have the tools and mental strength to deal with all this without getting sucked in. Ultimately, we should all remain vigilant of what the kids are doing on their devices, both on and offline. Good luck and have fun to you, whether or not you and your family is gaming this summer. We're all in this together for the children, and we're always learning. This is The Institution, and if you want to reach out, you can email theinstitutionpodcast at gmail.com or find us on Twitter at institutionpod. New sections will come out as quickly as I can put them out this summer, and I'm planning on figuring out a regular schedule during the school year for listening to on weekday mornings for the drive to school and the drive home. Thanks for listening.